Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I have two guests joining me this morning. My first guest is Judith Hannon. She's author of Motherhood Exaggerated. Judith is a writer. She's written for over 25 years. Her essays have appeared in publications such as Women's Day, Twins Magazine, Martha's Vineyard Gazette. But this is her new book we're going to be talking about, Motherhood Exaggerated, which is described as an emotionally uncompromising memoir, and it the book is her memoir about her daughters and her diagnosis with childhood cancer, Ewing sarcoma to be specific, and she was diagnosed when she was eight years old. So this is really her journey, her daughter's journey, and actually the journey of the whole family navigating themselves through this diagnosis of cancer. Um, my Second guest is a psychologist. His new book is Rethinking Depression. New book explains how his new book explains how to shed mental health labels and create personal meaning. But first, we have Judith here with us. And uh, one of the things in the beginning of the book, welcome to the show. First of all, Judith, nice to have you on. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, You say that everything can change in an instant, and I kind of want to start with that because when your daughter was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma at eight years old with cancer, the word none of us likes to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, How did everything change in an instant for you? Um, Well, it became kind of surreal. I I wasn't unfamiliar with having an ill child. My uh, Nadia has a twin brother who has asthma and severe food allergies, um, but there's nothing like hearing the word cancer. You know, I wasn't under any illusions that um, bad things couldn't happen. It wasn't so much that I thought that my children were exempt from um, uh, from illness or anything like that. Um, but because I was struggling already with, you know, specifically how to be Nadia's mother, um, this one really made me examine um, what I had to do, how I had to change, you know, what were the things that happened in my life that were influencing me as a mother and what I needed to get rid of. And um, my relationship with my husband, you know, you see at the beginning of the book that we respond very differently. And so that was also something that changed very dramatically, that you kind of get in your routines with your family and then you don't have routines anymore. Yeah, the routines kind of just go away. I have a friend who was recently diagnosed with end stage or whatever, uh, stage three or stage four ovarian cancer, and she right. used the same word that you did. She said, she called me up, it's a best friend since uh, nine years old, mm-hmm. and she said to me, 
it's surreal. Yeah. I feel it's just, she used that same word. She said, it's just surreal. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Your whole vocabulary uh, changes, and you can't believe that you're using, you know, words like cancer and chemotherapy and neutropenia, which is when you lose all your, your white blood cells. You just can't believe that you're using those words, and they relate to your life. And, and, and your your child. Um, and, and Judith, that's what I kind of want to focus on because, yes, it's your child. You know, it's your eight-year-old child. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, as parents, we're, you know, our children, we protect them, we take care of them, and all of a sudden your child, your daughter, is diagnosed with cancer. Is there Are there feelings of, like, what should I have done something? Could I have done something? Or do you feel guilty? Does any of that run through your mind? Um. I didn't feel guilty because she was diagnosed with cancer. I felt, um, particularly at the beginning, that as long as she was suffering, I had to suffer. Mm-hmm. That I couldn't, like at one point she said to me, how about if, if, Mom, how about if you get the chemo and I'll get better? You know, which is what every mother would want. You know, let me suffer, but you'll yeah. get better. And so I would make myself um, kind of get down on her level of suffering. I made sure that I was with her through every moment of her difficulty, not so much, not only because that was the right thing to do as a mother, but because I felt as if I had no right to... Um, to be happy. Uh, to, 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 to look away or to be yeah. happy, and that's wrong. I mean, I don't think that's that's the right approach, and I, I kind of modified that as, as time went on with her. Um, but at the very beginning, I did find that, um, that that was kind of how I responded, that it wasn't um, that she shouldn't, you know, that I should suffer with her, I guess. But I didn't feel guilty that she got cancer. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, as you're describing it, I think that's a, and from a, as a social worker and working with families with, who are dealing with children who have cancer, um, that that's really a common thing, particularly with mothers, not necessarily with fathers, although right. I mean, I'm generalizing, but that mothers really feel like if my child is suffering, like in this case, and she has to go through chemotherapy, that I can't have, I can't go to the movies, I can't right. go to the theater, I can't have a good time because right. that would right. be deserting her. And right. as you say, that's something you do have to take care of yourself first so that you can take care of your, your right. child. Right, but yeah, it's, you know, and even when she was having a good time, like she... Whenever she was feeling well, that was always a time for me to take a breather. And so it was my husband then that would take her to the movies or take her to Rye Playland, which is a, a you know one of those theme parks near here. Because um, <clears throat> I never liked to do that stuff anyway. No, neither um, did I. <laughs> so, so he was he, <clears throat> excuse me. He was the one that was having you know kind of those fun times with her um, <clears throat> because I needed time to recover. But my recovery was really just kind of sitting there staring at the wall. You know, it's not so much that I, you know, I tried to work out and I tried to do all those things that they tell you to do. I tried to eat, you know, I, you know, tried to walk. I, I mean, I, I've always, always loved nature, and I just couldn't find any comfort in the things that had typically comforted me. So um, what did you find? I mean, at some point you have to emotionally... <clears throat> get on the bandwagon. You have to, as you say, everything changes. Right. And it changed in an instant, but then it, it, it takes time to adjust to that instant. And I guess, how did you do that? Like, at what point maybe you could say, well, okay, fine, I went into another, I'm in another realm or I'm in another uh, mode, and how did you get there emotionally? Right. Like, 
Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think probably the, the toughest time was during the time of that they were making the diagnosis, and then there was like a two-week period before she started treatment. So that whole period from October 31st, which was Halloween, which is when um, her jaw cracked when she was chewing on a piece of candy, um, to her chemo, which started the, uh, I think, the last week in November, right before Thanksgiving. That time was that really bizarre twilight zone time. Once someone gave me something to do, and we had, again, this, this, this routine, this, this um, aesthetic, it was a routine I wasn't familiar with, um, but um, once someone told me to do something, then I felt a lot more comfortable. Yeah. So, you know, having think, some kind of a, or having not some kind of, having a treatment plan, having something to do that grounded you emotionally. Completely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I am <clears throat> the daughter of a scientist, and so, um, again, a plan is really important to me. Um, but it was confusing. You know, you walk into this environment, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that is completely unfamiliar, and you know there, there aren't people running around telling you, you know, there's no um, when you go to a hotel, there's always someone that tells you how the TV works and how there's nobody there that that tells you where the cafeteria is or what it means when certain sounds chime or anything like that. So I spent a lot of time just observing, just seeing, and trying to you know come up with my own. Um, <clears throat> understanding of what was going on around me. Um, in the meantime, Nadia, she was like, once she realized that this is where she was going to be spending her next, you know, six months, she was off in the playroom and she was, you know, just doing everything that she could um, to be Nadia. You know? Well, children, I think, adjust far more quickly than adults. Mm-hmm. Just they seem to. <clears throat> Whatever, the, you know, they just kind of, kind of, that's the evolutionary process. Right, I don't know. Right. But my, I have like, now, because you mentioned in the beginning, and I think uh, about you and your husband, you both had different reactions, and, right. and that, too, is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. You know, mm-hmm. mothers react differently than fathers, and so can you kind of talk to us about that, like the difference in your reaction right. to, to, uh, yeah, to Nadia's diagnosis and your husband's reaction? Right. Um, so just a little background, um, despite the fact that I consider myself a modern woman, we had uh, very traditional roles in the family. Um, I did work before I had um, children and even when I had my first daughter, but when I had the three, I, I stopped working. Um, and I, you know, took care of the kids and my husband went to work and he worked very, very long hours. He was establishing his career. Um, and so I was the mother. And I wasn't very good necessarily filling him in on, on everything that happened during the day. You know, what does this, you know, businessman want to know about how much Franny cried when I dropped her off at nursery school? You know, it was like a hard thing to, to explain. So from the very beginning, um, it was clear that I was going to be the one who was going to be taking care of Nadia because she hadn't, they hadn't established this kind of relationship where she would depend on him as the primary caregiver. Um, so that was, you know, one difference. I think the major difference is that John was angry. He would, and I, he might still be. He was angry about what happened to his daughter. Um, I wasn't. You know, I, I was sad. I was devastated. I, um, my heart broke, as did my husband's. Um, but he, um, 
he wanted answers maybe about why it happened or he wanted to understand it or he um he he's probably a little bit more um believes more in mystical things maybe than I do um I tend to go inward and I don't reach out to people and again I'm not saying that's a good thing that is something that I have um looked at in myself and 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 it, it's not the best thing but the way I dealt with it at the time was to shut out everybody else and John was like canvassing people who you know what what can I get from this person that's going to be reassuring and what can I get from that person um so that was a difference you know there's one scene at the beginning of the book when we come home from the doctors and we both go out for a walk, but we go in different directions because we we need different things. I didn't want to get sucked into Johnny's um, fear um, because he always took care of me. That was like an, another big change. Um, but we did our, our paths crossed. Whatever route we were taking, our paths crossed, and we met on the sidewalk, and we had one moment of connection, and then we were just stuck in our, our in our different heads, and it took a while to connect. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the challenge you mentioned. You know, obviously having different reactions, and John, your husband, I think men tend to, and as you said, you had traditional roles at the time, you know, they, they're, they are working, they're in control, or they see themselves right. as finding answers in terms of their work, and, and this is another problem that needs to be resolved or solved or taken care exactly. of. And it, yeah, so that's exactly. a different. And then, it, obviously, and one of the things you also said that in terms of you know, reading the book, that he didn't even want to read your book, but was right. forced to by one of the your publisher before it became published, but mm-hmm. uh, and that Nadia ha- has not read the book. Well, she actually has. That's, oh, she has. That's now brand she has. new. Okay. That um, she um, actually ended up uh, being quite proud of me. You know, she's twenty now, so um, she's had quite a bit of distance, and she has never. Um, she's always remained connected to this experience. Um, she hasn't tried to. You know, yes, at the very beginning, she didn't want to think that. It affected her at all. She didn't want to think that any of her anxieties might have had anything to do with that. But she's, you know, this is part of what happened to her. She feels connected to the people that she met when she was there. So, and actually, Motherhood Exaggerated has a Facebook page, and there are however many likes there are. There are more of Nadia's friends that have liked my Facebook, the Motherhood Exaggerated Facebook page, than my own friends. So, um, she's, you know, she's, she's definitely proud, and she has read the book. I don't know that she'll ever come to a reading, um, but she, um, once she read it, she realized it wasn't so bad. Um, my husband and we have to tell her. You know, I do want to tell listeners because um, she is now at uh, Brown University. You said she's twenty years old. So, what is right. she? A sophomore? She's a sophomore. Yeah. She's uh, studies dance and religion. Um, she has a. Um, you know, when she was little, before she was um, diagnosed, she was a gymnast. And um, afterwards, she competed for a year, but um, she eventually made the transition to dance. She's a modern dancer, a beautiful dancer, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she also has a real, a very strong interest in religion. Um, she went to India when she was a senior in high school for a couple of weeks and, um, and is really interested in, in in kind of, you know, what religion can offer you. You know, she knows that she doesn't waste time asking the question about why she had cancer because yeah. um, she does no answer, and she knows that, and she's found that through her study of religion and through her study of science. So 
You um, also, and and um, one of the, when you mentioned that she has been what to India and Israel, it kind of the question I have is you mentioned that you had to as now that she's well, now that Nadia is well, mm-hmm. that you have to now go back into being a parent of a well child, and right. that's an adjustment too. And I hear that well, if you, she went to Israel and she went to India, I would say you're on the road because <laughs> they're. So, you know, she's allowed to go there to travel on her own, I'm sure, amongst many other things. But talk to us about that, because, you know, that every time that, you know, she gets a nosebleed or any time mm-hmm. she gets something or the, a flu, I would imagine you're thinking, oh, my God, is the cancer back? Right. Well, I, I think we all do, I, and, and she does, that's for sure. Um, it, it's getting better, um, and now it's only when it's... Um, you know, really, really sick, you know, the, the cold, you know, I'm over the, you know, just, I used to look at other mothers and say, well, how do they respond when their kids get sick? It was almost like I forgot how to, how to do that, how to take care of a kid that had a cold as opposed to a kid that had um, cancer. Um, but you know, we have had some, you know, scary moments. Um, she actually had a seizure when she was up at camp um, that, we think was caused by some pain that she suffered when she got hit with a volleyball. Um, and so, you know, the first thing that you think about, of course, is that she, you know, has a brain tumor. Um, so your head, you just go there before, you know, your brain goes there before the rest of your body does. You, you can't even help it, really. But I don't... Um, I am so happy that, I mean, she didn't go to Israel alone. We all went together. Yeah. But she is, she is thinking, uh, she's, she's um, thinking about going to Berlin this summer. The, the fact that she can travel without us is a huge step for her. And her, her steps towards independence are um, kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And that's where, you know, when, when she has these moments of anxiety and, homesickness or whatever, that's where when Johnny and I you know, have to remind ourselves that it's not cancer because it feels like it in a way and some of the emotions that it brings up, um, you know, some of but her... But wouldn't, wouldn't this be a time, Judith, like to reach out to other people? I know you said you're the one, you turn inward. Right. I mean, do have you, like, if you know, other parents are listening and they're trying to kind of figure out their own journey or how they handle it if their mm-hmm. child's been diagnosed with cancer. Right. I mean... Was there anybody who did support you? I don't necessarily mean big support groups, but one or two people who helped you along your, the way. I had your... um, a lot of friends and family who um, supported my family, who, um, you know, a, a nephew who took Max to a hockey game. Um, my family was always around, friends were always around bringing food, um, things like that, Um there were definitely people that supported the family, and those are very important people. I have some very close friends who were always there if I wanted them. I didn't really know how necessarily to use them. I found that some of the people that I found most helpful were people that I didn't know as well as some of my very closest friends. Um, you know, uh, uh, the mother of one of Dot, uh, Nadia's classmates um, is a therapist, and you know, she came to see me a couple of times when Nadia was in the hospital, and I found almost like that. It's not because she's a therapist. I, I found that it was because <laughs> the, 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 I wasn't quite as close to her, and that was almost easier in a certain way. Yeah, um, and that's very understandable. It's kind of somebody in between a therapist and a friend, because friends sometimes are so attached to you. There's so much emotional stuff. 
you can't get rid of that. So right. someone who's a little bit distant, but that you respect and who has some connection. I, I have found that experience in my own life with, with, with other issues, but I think that's a good point. That's, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about grief. Um, is it C.S. Lewis? Is he the one who wrote Chronicles of Narnia? Anyway, he wrote, he wrote a book about grief, and he talks about um, when people would come, that he loved having people around so long as they knew not to talk to him. And that's kind of the comfort that I had when Nadia had her, her big surgery to remove the tumor and reconstruct her jaw. Family was there. It was an all-day thing. We were there like from 6 o'clock in the morning till well, I was there all night, but... Um, <clears throat> We had people coming in and out and bringing food and just chit-chatting. I loved that there were people around me. And, you know, out of that whole time, you know, maybe I had a little conversation here and there. But I loved that they were there. It's like having a blanket. Um, and, and that, and, and I, I always noticed that my friends were there. It wasn't that I, that I didn't love it and appreciate it. I didn't always know how to use it, and maybe I didn't need it. I just needed to know that they were there. Well, maybe that, I was going to say, maybe that's how you used it. You were surrounded by people, but you didn't have to necessarily be interacting with them all the time. Right. And they knew that. They, they weren't expecting anything from me. Now, um, what know, about, because we haven't talked about siblings, because that's mm-hmm. important, too. This is obviously when, some, when anyone in the family is diagnosed with cancer. I mean, it's a family issue. It's a, right. you know, so... Um, Nadia has, you have two other children right. who are twins? Uh, yeah, uh, Max and, no, Max and Nadia are twins. Okay, Nadia Max. has a twin brother, and then they have an older sister, Franny. And, um, you know, I think they, they responded uh, quite differently. I think for Max, because he had also had his own health issues, he had to struggle with the fact that you know, now his sister was sick, and because he's a twin, his first question was, does, does that mean that he would get cancer, too? Um, and, you know, of course it doesn't, but um, he responded um, in, in so many different ways. Um, he was a kind of a kooky, arty kind of kid then, and he became our entertainer in a certain way. And, um, but he also had a lot of anger. Um, he wanted to be very close to Nadia, but he also kind of resented the attention that she was getting. Um, and so he kind of flip-flopped a lot. Do you think that was because originally he was the one, you said he had asthma and allergies because he was the sick one who got all the attention? Yeah, well, that, the, that, that, with, I think that's part of it, but I also think because, um, you know, at that age, at eight years old, girls are still kind of outperforming boys, and yeah. Nadia was always kind of ahead. You know, I sent them to separate schools um, because I really thought it was important that that Max spend time with boys to to see that, um, you know, to be comfortable with with how boys develop as opposed to girls. So I think part of it was also that, you know, he. Um, he needed to get away from the shadow of both of his sisters in a certain way and to develop as a boy develops as opposed to a girl. So there was a lot of competition between them as well. Um, and so, and, and I, and, but I also think that Max, is, he has very tender feelings, and he was very worried about me as well. And at that 
point in time, he played the cello, and I remember he used to, um, when I would come home um, you know, for dinner or whatever before going back to see Nadia, he would follow me around with his cello, and he'd play for me, and, you know, so... Um, he he tried to find ways, but I, I think his most valuable, um, you know, he, he inserted himself into what was going on. Because he was young, he was technically not allowed to visit Nadia in the hospital when she was an inpatient, but we did sneak him in a few times. It was really important to him, and he wanted to, you know, for both of them, both Franny and, and Max, they wanted to be a part of it. Franny, I've always said, was born to be an older sister. Um, she was always there for Max whenever there was a problem. She loved having siblings, loved when they were little and they were driving me crazy and she would just come home and she would make everything so much easier. And I had to be very careful not to depend on her, not to sit there and wait, you know, when's Franny coming, when's Franny coming. When Adi was in the hospital... Um, Franny would go visit her every evening, and Nadia would say, when's Franny coming? When's Franny coming? She has this charm and this way about her and this commitment. Um, and Franny was in the seventh grade at this point, and she was preparing for her bat mitzvah, so she was pretty busy, but um, still managed to find the time to um, commit herself to Nadia. But both of the kids were pretty devastated when I told them. Um, and, you know, Franny, because she was older, <clears throat> found other ways to um, reassure herself. She talked to our pediatrician. She, um, you know, she, um, like me, I think she went through this feeling of, you know, surreal and this can't be happening or maybe, you know, what if it did happen, you know, her, you know where her imagination took her. And then once she had something to do, she found, you know, it was almost therapeutic for her in a way. Um, so, but for both of them, as I've always said, you know, they, you know, Max's asthma flared up a couple of times during this. Franny would get um, colds and respiratory infections. They wanted me to take care of them. You know, every yep. kid wants their mother to love them and and to be there for them. And was there any like point where you just felt Judith like I mean because I'm as we're listening to the, your story and as it unfolds, it's like it seems overwhelming. It feels overwhelming because it's complex. I mean, as right. we're describing the, re- it's not just you know one child reacts one way and there's a solution to how you handle right. it because right. it's always evolving too. I mean, as, as you're describing it. So, as a mother, how and I keep going kind of maybe back to this, but as you know, treatment evolved and the kids responded and everything. How did you not just fall apart? <laughs> yeah, I don't think people do. You know, it's so funny now when I take Nadia back to the hospital for checkups and I see mothers going through this, or even if I'm at the, you know, walking by a playground and I'll see a mother with a perfectly health, healthy six-month-old, I'm like, how do they do that? You know, it's it's kind of like... I don't know that, I, you know, taking care of an infant now almost seems um, like something I wouldn't be able to do. I think when you're in the midst of it, you do it. Um, I think afterwards, I, I think, and, and we were fortunate in the sense that Nadia's treatment was relatively short. You know, I think the whole thing from beginning to end of the actual treatment part was seven months, and then, of course, you don't you don't really exhale for a number of years after that, but um, <clears throat> at least I was it. And we were in our hometown. We were you know, in New York City. There were so many people at the hospital who came from all over the world and didn't have you know, support around them. So, yeah, and I think that's really, 
That's important. Uh, as yeah. you say, you were in your own environment. You yeah. know, all your supports were there. Um, well, it's, you know, we, we've reached the end of our half hour. Okay. I could keep on going and talking to you, and I, I do, but I do want listeners, because I obviously want to mention the book again. It's Motherhood Exaggerated mm-hmm. by Judith Hannon. And, um, Judith, can we go to a website, or do you have a website? Right, my website, motherhoodexaggerated.com. I think maybe just went up yesterday or today. If it doesn't okay. work today, it should work tomorrow. Um, so, um, and there's a way to order the book on the website. Um, you know, there's also always, you know, I, I urge people to go to their local bookstores and ask for it because that's okay. one, of, one of the ways to get books in bookstores is if people ask for it. All right. So um, go to your local bookstores, ask for the book. Right. Um, and then there's always Amazon. And Amazon.com. Right. Anyway, and thank you Noble. so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's been a pleasure to have you. Judith Hannon, Motherhood Exaggerated. Uh, coming up next is the author of Rethinking Depression, which is a new book which explains how to shed mental health labels and create personal meaning. And uh, this book is by Eric Mizell, and Eric is a, a psychologist uh, who practices in California, amongst other places. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to Voice America Variety World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Eric Mizell. He's author. His new book is called Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning. He has a de- he's a, a licensed family therapist, and he is also has a degree in counseling psychology, which uh, before we 
were talking for a few minutes. I told him I, too, have a degree in uh, counseling psychology as well as an MSW. Um, let me give you some statistics here. 11% of the U.S. total population is taking antidepressant medication. From 1996 to 2005, the number of Americans taking antidepressants has doubled. 20 million Americans are diagnosed with depression each year. Given that, I don't really think I have... Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Maisel. Hi, and Catherine. Great to be with you. Given those statistics, perhaps I don't even have to ask you why you wrote the book, <laughs> because we're talking 20 million Americans are diagnosed with depression each year. Um, what it, and, and What's the title of your on? book is Rethinking <laughs> Depression. So uh, what is, I guess the, real, the first question is going to be, what does rethinking depression mean? If we have 20 million people diagnosed with depression each year, we want to rethink the whole thing and you give bet. them a different diagnosis? Or what? No, 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 we don't want a different diagnosis. The book argues that there is no mental disorder of depression, that that's a label and that's a certain kind of transaction, that you walk in with unhappiness or sadness or grief or anguish, or despair, one of those old-fashioned, normal-sounding words, and you report certain what's called symptoms, and you leave with a diagnosis and antidepressants and maybe an appointment for psychotherapy. The reason that this is a, quote, epidemic is that folks have already internally called themselves depressed. That's the word that's replaced sadness and unhappiness and all those other words. People don't say, I'm sad anymore. They say, I'm depressed. They've bought the language, and so they walk in, and a certain transaction is automatically done. They call themselves depressed. They're handled the, handed the mental disorder label of depression, and they walk out with antidepressants. Let me stop you there, because I remember when I was getting my MSW and, my, I guess, my master's in counseling as well, one of the things that they always tried to make a distinction between was depression, the clinical diagnosis of depression or just somebody using it as the lay public would say, I feel depressed, when actually you would want the client or patient to say, well, are you sad, are you unhappy? Uh, you know, that was many years ago, and I guess what you're saying, the tables have turned, so that when a patient comes in and says, I feel depressed, then that's the diagnosis, not really being very specific about what the depression means or the sadness or the unhappiness? Absolutely, and you don't even have to say you're depressed. You can say, I'm sleeping poorly or I'm eating too much. Those are, quote, symptoms of depression, unquote, and why they are is a little bit mysterious. But as you know, folks sitting around in a room make up these diagnoses. We have a new manual coming out in 2013, a revised diagnostic and statistical manual coming out with scores and scores of new, quote, mental disorders, unquote, including, and you may be aware of this, the changes being made, uh, they want to make the change to make grief a mental disorder. That used to be a depression exemption. Now, if you're grieving for a little too long, that's a mental disorder. And I hope that this is a, you know, important buyer beware moment for folks. They may want what the mental health industry provides, namely, chemicals with certain effects called antidepressants and talk of a certain sort called psychotherapy. They may want that, but they really want to be aware of what they're buying. Dr. Mazel, I mean, I am, I did not know, and I'm glad you mentioned it on the show, I did not realize that they're going to come out with a diagnosis of grief as being a mental disorder. All I can think of is the big pharma, the pharmaceutical companies, the more diagnoses and disorders you have, the more drugs you sell and the more money you make. I'm so afraid that's exactly it, yes. 
And by the way, 10,000 mental health providers have signed a petition protesting this particular change. So it's not like all mental health professionals are colluding in producing more and more mental disorders, but they have to buy into the system sufficiently to believe in the idea of, quote, diagnosis and, quote, treatment, or else they can't really be in that profession. They have to buy that idea. So they're a little stuck with this wide array of things called mental disorders that aren't really mental disorders. So what do we, as consumers, as lay people, how, what do we do? We, let's say we are feeling sad or unhappy, or, and we, what do we do? Do we, we have to get your book, I guess, and go through chapters? <laughs> well, no, I, I, can, I, can name, I, mean, I can name three straightforward things. One is you may, to repeat myself, you may want the chemicals that the mental health profession can provide. If you're in a deep hole, if you're suicidal, you may want an antidepressant to get you through this moment. Maybe it'll flatten out all your emotions, but maybe it'll also open a door and allow you to have a chance to breathe a little and think about what's going on. So you may want antidepressants. So it's and, not always a bad thing to have an antidepressant. No, because they are, it's like, it's as, it's as if you said you were shy and I said, take three shots of whiskey. We know that's not a cure, but that is a chemical with an effect, and you might want that shot of whiskey to get up on stage. In other words, you may want the effect that a chemical has. It's not a treatment for an illness, but it is a chemical with an effect, and you may want it. So lots of people may want it, but they also want to be thinking about what's going on, and that is that they're taking a chemical with effect rather than they're taking medication for a disorder. So A, you may want the chemicals. B, you may want the talk. Namely, you may want to do psychotherapy because talk is helpful. Us talking provides information to your listeners. Talk is helpful. So you may want that. But the third thing is you, you have to look in the mirror and see what's making you unhappy. And folks would love to turn over that operation to a, so to speak, mental health professional and get a happy pill in return. But unfortunately, if your job is making you unhappy, if your relationship is making you unhappy, if you've evaluated life as a cheat and kind of your whole vision of life is bleak, you have to take charge of that. You have to look at that and make the kinds of changes that will reduce your experience of unhappiness. Right. So there's hard work to be done. We don't like, I think we're a society where we don't like the hard work. There's hard know. work to be done. Yeah. But, there's, but there's hard work to be done if you don't make the changes, and that's the hard work of suffering. So, in other words, we need to, okay, I, I agree with you. We have to sit down and do the hard work, and I think it has long-lasting effects as well. I mean, once you do that, there's a rippling effect to the changes that happen in your life. If you sit down and, as you say, eliminate the unhappiness, I think I'm quoting you, that comes from living an inauthentic life. Let's talk about that. People are unhappy or sad or not feeling good about themselves because they live an inauthentic life. What does that mean? Yeah, it, it's, it's language from existentialism, and I've been working on a kind of updated existentialism for some time now. And one of the main points is the paradigm shift from seeking meaning to making meaning. For thousands of years, we've had the idea that meaning's out there somewhere, the top of a mountain or at some guru's feet. And I think we're mature enough as a species now to understand that we actually have to make meaning. We have to decide what our values are, what our principles are, what our goals are, what we want out of life and make meaning. And so an inauthentic life is a life where you're kind of receiving meaning from the world and going through the motions and understanding that you're not making yourself proud on a daily basis. And an authentic life is one where you attempt 
to make meaning on a daily basis. You make meaning investments. You seize meaning opportunities. This is my language for the idea that we have things to do on a daily basis that are going to make ourselves proud, and we're going to feel like we're alive if we do them. What do you do, Dr. Mazzell, on a daily basis to make yourself feel, to, to have an authentic life? Let's say you wake up in the morning. Are there certain things that you do? Well, it probably falls into the two large categories, and it's exactly what Freud said, the two large categories of work and love. I work all day long. I have a large coaching practice. I have 40 clients at any given moment. I train creativity coaches and meaning coaches. I write at least one book a year. So I keep busy working, and then I have a loving relationship with my wife and my kids, and I enjoy relating. Human beings have discovered that there are maybe 20 or so categories of important meaning opportunities, and relating and creating are two of them. Service is another. There are all sorts of meaning opportunities available to us, but we have to seize them or else they're just potentialities. Well, you described your life, you're intelligent, you have degrees in education, you travel, you have a wife of 35 years, we should say, and you have your children. Okay, and you're writing and coaching, doing all these great things, and that sounds fantastic. But what about those of us maybe who don't have as interesting a life? Okay, that's fine. And what, number one, and number two, what about people, you know, you get thrown that curveball, something horrible or something really difficult. It doesn't have to be horrible, but you have some real glitches, whether at work or your spouse is having an affair and decides to leave you or your kid flunks out of college or I can give you a whole list. You bet. Then what? How do you get up and you still have that to, authentic you still life have and not to, say, oh, God, I'm depressed? That's right. You still have to make meaning on a daily basis. That's the prime decision. Let's say you're a displaced person in a refugee camp. That can't be a good experience. But you can still decide on that day that you're going to work with the committee that's trying to get international aid, or you're going to prove the exception and be one of the very few in that camp who escapes the camp and gets to move on to some other place, or you might invest meaning in teaching your kids what you know, you become your school for your kids. In other words, as dire as your circumstances are, you still have the opportunity to make meaning, and kind of you have to, or else you're just going to be depressed, so to speak, depressed. You're just going to be unhappy in those circumstances. So in a way, you don't have a choice. That's part A. And part B, there are things you can do to improve your experience of meaning, even in the direst circumstances. And it reminds me of a movie or a film I just saw when you mentioned a displaced persons camp because I was thinking about, uh, well, specifically the Jews living in displaced persons camps after the war. But there's a new movie out called In Darkness. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I do not know it, no. Well, it it kind of fits in exactly what you're talking about. It's about a group of about 20 Jews who were hid in the sewers of Poland Mm -hmm. during for a year and a half until the uh, Russians came and, uh, you know, occupied Poland and got rid of the uh, the Germans. But, and the story of a sewer cleaner uh, who actually was the person who helped save these this group of Jews their lives exactly. by bringing them food. But they had, like you said, even in the midst of living in a sewer, there were, he brought them, uh, I think, a menorah. They celebrated uh, the holidays. They learned... Uh, the father taught the daughter how to 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 read better and to do mathematics and and it's sort of like I think that's what you're. Ta- I mean, in the very very worst of cir- 
circumstances. And they survived. In the darkness is the name of it. That's exactly right. And, of course, they survived, you know, via the gods of whimsy. It's not so much that what they did caused them to survive. It's that they got lucky, of course. And so it's not that our meaning-making efforts can, you know, trump the facts of existence. It's just what we have to do. It's, you know, we, we want to have an indomitable spirit in the face of the facts of existence because that's what makes us proud. And I think that's rather than thinking so much about happiness and unhappiness and being so much mood-oriented as this culture is, we more want to think about what makes us proud than whether we're happy or not. You know, if you think of an Eisenhower, you know, the day before D-Day, we don't think he's happy. You know, we don't think he's stress-free. We think he's doing what he needs to do because something important is, is, is hinging in the balance. And I think that's the way we want to lead our life, not so much like we're launching D-Day tomorrow, but that our efforts matter, that our life matters, and that what we do matters. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important point, and I, and I think, um, I don't know if this leads into it, but I had a, you know, this has to do with the mental illnesses. Mental illness mm-hmm. is to be considered something that was, like, shameful. We don't talk about it. You, you don't tell people if you're... If you're really unhappy or depressed, or if you've been diagnosed as someone who has depression, my question is: What are today? Though we have a, we seem to have a much more open-minded attitude towards mental illness. Now, do you think there are serious? Are there serious repercussions that that come from that? Because now we have an open, we have this open-minded attitude. It's okay to say that you're depressed. It's okay to go to the doctor and get drugged. Um, and, you know, brag, even brag, Uh, I'm taking Mm -hmm. Xanax or I take, I don't know all the antidepressants, but, you know, um, it's kind of like, uh, it's expected. So that's okay. It's important to say out loud that you're in pain. It's important in the same sense that it's important to, to stand up in an AA meeting and say, I'm an alcoholic. It does not help you to keep these things inside of you. So it is important to stand up and make the announcement that you're suffering then you have to figure out what are the smart things to do for the suffering. And as I say, going to mental health professionals is a smart thing to do because you may want their chemicals and you may want their talk. So you don't want to remain in the closet and be, so to speak, embarrassed about being unhappy, especially if, you, if you've made this calculation that maybe you, there's no reason why you should be unhappy, that things are sort of perfectly fine and therefore you're not entitled to be unhappy and therefore you ought not to say that you're unhappy. You don't want to make that calculation. Because I think for a lot of people, what's gone on right out of conscious awareness is that they've evaluated life as a negative thing. They've evaluated it as a cheat. They wanted more out of life. And that's why they're unhappy. That's why they're sad. But even if that's the reason, it's perfectly fine, sensible, and useful to say out loud, I'm feeling sad. So it's it's really I, I happen to agree with that. I think that's really important. Yeah, you have to. I mean, that's being authentic, isn't it? I mean, yes, you have to say this is how I feel, and and then you have to go from there. It is. And if somebody says to you, you have no reason to feel sad, well, you have to essentially ignore that kind of response. They have no right to say that to you. What about the chemical imbalance in the? We haven't really discussed that. I mean, they, you know, now with all of the, no one uh, knows. And I think one of the telling indictments of the mental health industry is they run no tests. If they actually believed that your, so to speak, depression was about some chemical imbalance or biological disorder or what have you, they would run a test. But they don't because I think, 
in a corner of their awareness, they know that they're talking about unhappiness and not a mental disorder. So I don't think we know if there are, you know, times when some chemical imbalance makes us sad or if the causality is the other direction. If because we aren't happy, we create a chemical change, that's perfectly reasonable also. Yeah, so we this, secrete certain chemicals if we're unhappy. I mean, absolutely. Sort of like a, so yeah. we don't even understand, you know, we're not even looking carefully at the idea of causality. Is it sadness creates a certain chemical imbalance or does a certain chemical imbalance cause sadness? If people were really investigating this subject matter, that's one of the questions they would ask. Which is the chicken and which is the egg? It seems, though, that we're on this kind of, I, I don't want to call it, I guess I will, a train wreck. I mean, we're just not, we're just going down this we're taking this train to, I mean, it's... it's and we're selling it, it to the whole world, you know. Yeah. We're, we're, selling, selling, we're selling our version of mental disorders, this way of sitting around in a room, creating a mental disorder out of whole cloth, creating a diagnostic picture, and selling it. We're selling it worldwide. I mean, even, and this is, even having, you know, when, when Tiger Woods, when it all came out about him and all his affairs, mm-hmm. we there's even a diagnosis now, I guess, for, uh, you know... With having too much sex, I forgot what the thing is, but it, it's like a, an actual, uh, it's like, you know, gambling too much or um, yes. drinking well, too much or having too you, much drugs. If you, and your, if you and your listeners are, are interested in what the committee that's turning out the new manual is thinking about, there, there's a site where you can, they, they keep up a site which talks about what they're looking at. And they're looking at it all kinds of things that are going to really disturb you when you read them. Things like new defiant kid disorders, where if your kid says no to you three times in a row, that's a mental disorder. Or, and I'm, I'm joking. I mean, I'm overstating yeah. it. But it, things like that are coming down the road. I, in, in rethinking depression, I kind of, as a joke, um, described how you could turn everyday boredom into a mental disorder in one minute flat. And here's a case of life imitating art. It turns out that the new DSM is looking at apathy as a mental disorder. Well, you can make any human thing into a mental disorder if all you do is provide a kind of checklist of, so to speak, symptoms. Well, who are the, who are the gatekeepers? Who are doing are these psychiatrists, psychologists, pharmaceutical companies? Who's creating this next uh, DSM? What is it? I don't know who the actual individuals are. Yeah. It's, it's, the manual is from the American Psychiatric Association. So presumably it's their members, and presumably it's their members plus people they invite in as, you know, advisors. I don't know who the actual characters are. I but do that... know that one of the former um, leads on a previous DSM, American Psychiatric Association DSM, has come out and said that he's not sure if this whole enterprise isn't um, illicit, illegitimate. So there are lots of voices. There have been voices for 40 or 50 years. The first DSM came out in 1950 or so. A fellow named Thomas Zaz, a Hungarian psychologist, has been railing against this for 50 years, sort of in the wilderness. <laughs> so it's not like there have not been some voices raised about this just not enough voices and, and not quite loud enough to counteract the pharmaceutical companies. So we need to do our homework. I mean, you've opened up a whole area that I was not familiar with, and I'm sure many of my listeners as well. So if we want to really, I mean, because it is serious, when, I mean, everything that you've been, the issues you talk about in your book, but uh, this, the American Psychiatric Association, this new DSM, yes. Five Manual is, is mm-hmm. a very, it has a huge impact on uh, our society, on uh, just on our society. Seriously, that's and I, right. I, I, and, we, yeah, 
And, and, you know, people are, of course, not in the loop to know this, but, for instance, Lancet, which is probably one of the top two or three medical journals in the world, just came out recently and said that if the DSM-5 committee continues to go down the road of wanting to make grief into a mental disorder, they, Lancet, are going to advise people not to use the DSM-5. All right. Well, that says a lot. and, it and does. I yeah, yeah, that really does. We have a couple minutes left. So sure. what do we want to leave our listeners with? I want to tell ericmazel.com. You can go to Eric's website. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think what I would like to um, leave listeners with is kind of just a little taste, simple program taste, and that is if you start to form strong intentions in life and then if you can get your thoughts aligned with those intentions and get your behaviors aligned with those intentions, you will feel happier. It's a basic cognitive behavioral approach, but but before you can do the cognitive part and the behavioral part, you have to form some strong intention. You have to decide where you want to make meaning in life, and that's a looking in the mirror moment. You want to take a look and make some decisions about where you want to make meaning and then follow through. Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning, Eric Mazel. And I should also mention your author of Mastering Creative Anxiety, which I'm sure many people, many of my listeners have read. So it was a pleasure having you on the show today. And I have to tell you, I learned a lot. This, uh, you've got my juices going with this DSM-5 <laughs> in the American Psychiatric Association because I've always had an issue with these pharmaceutical companies promoting all of their drugs at, from 6 o'clock on in the yep. evening. And uh, so this kind of fits into that whole... It does. Uh, yeah, that whole framework, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine, for having me. Great, great having you. And good luck with the book. Thank you so much. You have been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us, I have to remind you, listening live. You can listen live every Wednesdays from 10 to 11. That's Eastern Time. But at the end of the day, the show goes up. We put up the archive, and then you can listen to it anytime you want, 24-7. And you can also download it uh, on your computer. It goes into iTunes. So if there's any show that you uh, missed, and uh, go look at the descriptions of the show, and, and you can uh, download them or listen on iTunes. I hope you had a great morning. Have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.